Hello everyone and welcome to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. Now before we get started with this episode, I want to go ahead and have us here from our sponsor. Welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I'm your host, Nick Coons. I have a very important announcement to make today. Um, before we get started, go ahead and wherever you may be listening to this podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts in general, go ahead and like and subscribe to this podcast, and so you're always up to date with all the content, whatnot. Uh, the big announcement today is actually going to be my merch shop. This is one of the projects from my merch shop. I've actually created this one. Don't talk to me before my coffee. It comes in white and black as well. It's um, I'm going to put a link in there in the description below that takes you right to my Etsy shop. You can order it from there. Um, it's on and uh, all proceeds go to really helping out this channel, helping me create more content, more time to do so, more broadcasts to perform to you guys. So, with that out of the way, let me go ahead and tell you what's happening today. So, today I'm going to be doing another Give Me an Answer broadcast. This is actually going to be Give Me an Answer from uh, Pastor Cliff and Stuart Connectly, And they're actually over at their church in Grace Community Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. So, I'm going to be showing you this episode today. So, it's kind of a mixture between both the church and the Give Me the Answer ministry. So, without further ado, please enjoy Give me an answer.
Good morning, Grace community. It's good to see everyone. Hello to those online watching. We hope you uh, come join us. You still have time if you're close in the area to get here. <laughs> Amen. Uh, let us stand and let us pray together as we prepare our hearts to worship, as we prepare our hearts to receive the Spirit of God, to hear his word, um, and to hold on to it. Amen. God, we just come before you this morning thanking you, thanking you for waking us up, thanking you, Lord God, for the breath in our lungs. Thank you, God, that the sun is shining, Lord God. We thank you for all things this morning. We thank you even if things aren't going the way we want. We thank you because we know that you're in full control, oh Lord God, and we know that you know what's best and that you will have your way in our lives. God, we thank you that your love never fails us. We thank you that your love never gives up on us. We thank you, oh God, because it's your love that has drawn us here. It is your love that draws people to you. And so we just lift up the service, Lord God, that you would have your way, that your spirit would fill us, oh God, that your presence, oh God, would be surrounding us, oh God. We thank you for worship. We thank you for the word today. We thank you for the kids and the Sunday school teachers, oh God, every greeter, every person who's ushering, oh God, the tech team, oh God. We thank you for everyone in this building, oh God. In Jesus' name, have your way. Amen.
children in need connected with the Bridgeport Rescue Mission, school supplies that they'll be able to use when school starts this fall. We will also be having specialized brunch hot dogs. You've probably never had a brunch hot dog, but today we have special brunch hot dogs right on the grill by the commons to help fuel you during your backpack pack up. All right, are you still with me? Okay, good, thank you. Now, next Saturday, these same backpacks get delivered to the Bridgeport Rescue Mission. And Grace Community Church actually has a tent. The Bridgeport Rescue Mission has a block party next Saturday to help those in the area that go to the Bridgeport Rescue Mission. And Grace Church, as I said, has a tent. Uh, we are doing face painting, cotton candy for entertainment for the children in that area. We, our volunteers from 1030 to 1230 are all set. But from 12.30 to 2.30 next Saturday, we need a few more helpers. If you'd like to help out, touch base with me or Catherine Palazzola. Again, that's next Saturday. And finally, no, not finally, August 2nd, 
ladies game night at the Trepanier's house, and August 5th, we have a 20s and 30s barbecue. And for those of you men, remember the men's weekend is the last weekend in September, and I encourage you to check it out. It's quite a unique experience. I will see you at the grill for your specialized brunch hot dog. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. All right, students, you are dismissed to your Sunday school. I was waiting for you, Stuart. I thought you were coming to pray. Okay. <laughs> All right, we can stand for worship.
if there is enough evidence. I don't give a but um Thank you. <laughs> but You're honest. I, I feel like the Bible is sort of saying, here are these commandments, abide by them. Otherwise so he's saying that that is an objective truth to morality. Otherwise he's contradicting he's saying with the commandments that there already is an objective tr truth or relative truth or whatever. And I'm just saying this in in, in contradiction to that. These are my rules now, I'm not the so so our, my question is sorry. No, no, you're doing a great job. Thank you, ma'am. Yes. Objective truths which God is saying we should follow because they are objectively correct, morally right. Good. Great question. The basis of morality is not, hey man, buck up and follow the rules, will you? Follow the rules. Do a better job, follow the rules. That is not it. It is a relationship with God who loves you. So much so that he created you to live for eternity with him. Now, he calls you to love others. If I want to steal from her, because I like what she's got in her backpack, God says that is not loving her. That is disrespecting her. If I want to lie to her, because I want to get my way, that is evil. Why? Because it is the antithesis of loving her. To love her means to respect her enough to speak the truth to her, not to lie to her. So all the Ten Commandments are is specifically defining what it looks like for me to love her. Should we be beholden to the fickle whims of a God who can change his mind at any moment? He could send down a flood to kill all of us for being... Yeah, there's many examples of his punishment, especially in the Old Testament. That was part of the Old Covenant. The New Covenant, you see him tightening the noose through Matthew chapter 19, where, for example, it was allowable to give a woman a certificate of divorce in the Old Testament, and that was the way it was, where it was broader. It was broader with a nasty, brutish, ancient Near Eastern culture that was slowly progressive. There's a lot of progressives here on this college campus. By the way, that's a Christian term. It came out of Christian theology. This is not a capricious God. He is consistent in the Old Testament to judge unruly people groups with some, despite all their despicable ways, the Amalekites, he gives 400 years to turn and change. That is grace before he punishes. We're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to do give me an answer. So I would encourage you to feel free to raise questions this morning. Now, why are we doing this? First reason we're doing it is because some of us here have not yet come to faith in Christ, and it's an honor having you here. And if you have questions that have been obstacles between you and trusting in Christ, I hope you'll feel free to raise those questions. There is no bad question. The second reason we're doing this is because some of us who have put our faith in Christ are really struggling with doubt. Oh no, Cliff, I don't struggle with doubt. Fine. Then you're better than John the Baptist and you're better than the Apostle Peter. Because when John the Baptist was in prison, he doubted Christ. And the Apostle Peter, when he started walking on the water to Jesus, doubted Christ, and that's why he began to sink. So let's be honest. I think the majority of us, beginning with me, have doubts. And that is why we want to raise these hard questions that we struggle with, and that's appropriate. The third reason that we're doing this is because I hope this week, next week, in the coming weeks, when you're at a party, you will feel more comfortable entering conversations with people about your faith, about your worldview, about your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, for me, when I'm getting into those conversations at times, my heart rate elevates. And that's because I'm nervous and I start sweating. So, 
for me to think through issues before I get hit with them is very helpful. I don't like surprises. I get a lot of surprises in life, but I don't like them as much as I like being prepared. So, thirdly, this is an attempt for us to learn from each other and to grow in thinking through difficult issues. Stuart and I are going to entertain one question that is up on the screen, and then we're going to open it up, and the microphone's going to go up and down the aisle, and I hope that you're going to fire the hardest questions that you have that have, have been a challenge for you, and Stuart and I will say, that's a very good question. I do not know. And there's nothing embarrassing about that. If anybody thinks they've got all the answers to all the difficult questions in life, then they have got a problem. Nobody has all the answers to all the difficult questions in life. I sure don't. All righty, first question. Aren't all religions the same? No. All religions are not the same if I respect people. If I respect people and they say that there is no personal God, there's an impersonal reality out there, which is called Hinduism, or there are thousands of God, which others Hindus believe, and then I'm confronted by Islam that says there's only one God, Allah, and then I'm confronted by Judaism which says there's only one God, Allah, and then I'm confronted by Christianity which says there's one God, but he's in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I would argue it's intellectually disrespectful for me to say they're all saying the same thing. They're not saying the same thing. They're contradicting each other. Now, for as a follower of Christ, I'm called to be tolerant, which means I respect you regardless of what you believe. If you believe there is no God or that God is nature, and that's pantheism, I respect you. I disagree with you, but I respect you. If you're an atheist, I respect you, but I disagree with you. I think there really is a God. And the idea that all religions are the same flies in the face of what all religions believe and how they disagree. For instance, in Islam... The devout Muslim believes far more about Jesus than the typical American believes. Muhammad taught and Muslims believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, performed miracles, ascended to heaven, and is coming back a second time. That's a lot more than the typical American believes about Jesus. And yet Islam denies the unique deity of Christ. They deny his death on a cross because God would never allow a good prophet like Jesus to be nailed to a cross, and therefore they obviously deny his resurrection. Well, I'm sorry, right at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is his death on a cross for our sin, his resurrection from the dead. And repeatedly in the Quran, Muhammad says, Jesus is not God. He's a good teacher, but he's not God. I'm sorry, in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus clearly claims to be God. And the most fundamental difference between all the major world religions is this. All the major world religions teach if you work off your bad karma through a cycle of reincarnations, if you are wise, like Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, if you do enough good, as Muhammad defines good in the Quran, then maybe you will make it. Maybe you'll earn your way to heaven or to nirvana. Jesus Christ said you'll never earn it. It's impossible because God is holy and you are a sinner, a rebel against God. But Christ did something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. He sacrificed his life on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to forgive us and to give us eternal life. Do I tolerate and respect all people? I have no choice. Christ commands that. Which means, do I respect people who disagree with me? Of course I do. That's biblical tolerance. But it is being brain dead to say, nirvana is the same thing as heaven. When Muhammad teaches that you can have four wives and Jesus says you can have one wife, that is different. 
that contradicts. Either you can have four wives, men, or you can only have one wife. And Muhammad and Jesus contradict each other on that point. And it's not respectful for me to say, oh, they're all saying the same thing. No, that's highly disrespectful. It means I don't take what you say seriously. Jesus Christ loves you and me, and he comes to us in love and in truth. Are all religions the same? No, they're not. Do we tolerate and respect all people of whatever religious they are? Absolutely, yes, as followers of Christ. We're commanded to by Jesus. Second question. Christian identity is vastly different from our culture's understanding of what identity is. Our culture's understanding of identity typically has to do with what is your authentic self? Who really are you in your authenticity? It's a big word we hear today. And oftentimes our culture, when understanding identity, has to get down to a couple points. Is one, looking inward. Never look outward. You have to look inward, and oftentimes that's with the help of a priest or a psychiatrist, psychologist, or a social group that helps really help you define who you are by looking inward. So once you figure out who you are, which typically for any kid these days doesn't come until the end of the age, is you figure out who you are in the moment and then express that as loudly as possible. And that's problematic for a number of reasons. For a Christian, it's looking outward and upward instead of inward to figure out who you are. And in my counseling office, I see way more neuroses than psychoses today than ever. What's the difference? Neuroses is looking inward and having an inability to deal with the anxieties of life that are attached to reality. And it causes me tremendous stress. Psychoses is looking outward and it's a total break from reality. So it's anxiety, it's mania from looking outward and it's, it's just too much. So neuroses is looking inward so much so and trying to define myself oftentimes that it causes a mental breakdown in different ways. Christianity is the ultimate antidote when it comes to the question of how do you define yourself and your identity because of examples like John the Baptist in John 3.30 when he talks about how Jesus must become greater, I must become less. Or when Christ himself talks about in Mark that you are to lose your life in order to gain it. Or when Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 4 how I care very little what any human court thinks about me. I care almost not a wink about what I care about me. It only matters what Christ thinks of me. So it's radically different because everything in the Bible is looking outward in order to deal with your anxiety. Looking outward in order to deal with healing your broken relationships. Because when you are giving up yourself, now all of a sudden humility comes into play and you don't even have to think about yourself. You don't have to think about how I was wounded or injured or somehow cut off at the knees by this person so I'm going to get revenge. You don't have to think about, hey, i got to define myself and figure out who I truly am. It's like when Caitlyn Jenner said, it's only when I figure out who I really am, my authentic self, then I'll go through the pearly gates and God will welcome me. We know it's the opposite of that. Whatever your identity might be, the Christian identity is way more stable, durable, strong, and gives you a type of peace that nothing else could give. Thank you. All right, guys, let's go for it. What are some of the questions you have? We've got microphones, folks running those mics up and down the aisles. What are some questions you want to raise this morning? 
Yes, ma'am. Yvonne. Um, I have so many friends and family members that saying, how can God be um, caring, loving, mercy, forgiving when a child is born and is dead born or will die right after? How can God be God? And they said, well, we believe in Jesus. Jesus is the spiritual son of God. But I don't accept him really as a God because he was a prophet. So how can God be three people when God is only God? All right, you've raised two great questions here, Yvonne. All right, there's both of them great questions. I'll take the first one. Stuart, you take the second one. All right, my brother lost a little seven-year-old daughter at the end of the 90s in a tragic car accident. And my brother had a deep faith in Christ and still does. But I watched my brother suffer as he dealt with the death of his seven-year-old daughter in a horrible car wreck. I didn't go out there and say, okay, Stuart, this is the reason this happened. I went out there and said, Stuart, I do not know why God allowed that to happen. The Bible does not give us a clear answer. Why does God allow evil? So we have to be honest and say it's a mystery. I don't know. But there are a ton of points that need to be made in light of this problem of suffering. First point is... When God created in Genesis chapter 1, we read God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and we know that God is not the author of evil. But in Genesis chapter 3, we read how human beings rebelled against God, and that's where the train got off the track. That's where the arrow missed the mark. That's where chaos broke loose. Which means suffering is not God's idea. Suffering is a result of human rebellion against God. God steps back from planet Earth, and chaos erupts. Second point. Obviously, the all-powerful God chose to partially limit his power by creating me with a free will. If I hold back and hit this gentleman in the face and then turn to you and say, God made me do it, I'm a con artist and a liar. God gave me a hand to love and respect this gentleman, but I have a free will, which means I can roll it into a fist and send it crashing into his handsome face. To blame God for my irresponsible use of freedom is a cop-out. So the all-powerful God chose to partially limit his power by giving us a free will. Third point, Jesus Christ is a suffering God, which means God took his own medicine, which means when I suffer, I am to come to a God who understands my suffering firsthand. The most agonizing cry in the world is the following, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is what Christ cried out from the cross. He was in agony as he experienced separation from the Father. This is a God who loves us. This is a suffering God. And now I've got a choice to make. When I suffer, I can get bitter or I can get better. Bitter or better. And to get bitter means I'm angry. I'm angry at God. I'm angry at life. I'm angry at people. And that is a path to destruction. Instead, to become better means, Lord God, I don't know why you've allowed this to happen. I know you're a grieving God who grieves. I know you're a suffering God. Comfort me in my sorrow. And then the final point, Mrs. Hannah, is we have the ultimate solution to suffering in a risen Lord Jesus Christ. If there is no God, the ultimate answer to suffering is tough luck. Suck it up. That's reality. That's despair if you're thinking about it. In Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate solution for suffering. Forgiveness and eternal life in a heaven that we read about in Revelation 21.4. There will be no more crying, no more sickness, no more death. The old order has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is the hope that we have, that Jesus Christ is coming again. We will receive new resurrection bodies and eternal life in heaven.
Second question, Stuart, how do you think through the Trinity? Was it the Trinity or the prophets? Something with Jesus and the prophets or specifically the Trinity? I, I thought it was the prophets, but we'll, we'll go Trinity because that's an even tougher question. Nowhere in the Bible does it specifically say Trinity. We, we get in Genesis and then we get in the Gospel of John, the word became flesh, so Jesus, or the spirit hovering over the waters. So we have to take all these different passages and look at the early church fathers and start to understand why did they bring them all together and garner something like the Trinity. And when you begin to do so, that's when it really makes sense that we don't just have a great prophet in Jesus. We don't just have a great father alone without any son or Holy Spirit in God. No, when you start to bring all these passages together, then you get the Trinity. And that's why the church fathers came up with the Trinity. Good question. Thank you. Next person, I have a question. Yes, sir. PJ. If you've lost your voice box and cannot read out loud, I don't think you're violating the book of Revelation by not reading out loud. I think that John's point is, read the word of God. Now, the book of Revelation that you've referred to is very difficult to understand because it's apocalyptic literature, highly symbolic. But one of the things that I appreciate most about the book of Revelation is it's written by John to some people who are suffering, suffering big time. And when you read the book of Revelation, notice how many times John calls us to worship Worship God. That is one of the key solutions to suffering, to pain, to frustration. To worship God. To worship God means to get out of myself, to get out of my self-preoccupation, and to be caught up in wonder, adoration, and praise of the living God. The mental health that that brings, the peace that that brings, the inner strength to deal with suffering is profound. So read the word of God, apply it to yourself, and worship God, and you'll be blessed for it. Thank you for raising that up. Yes, sir. So I have someone in my life who believes in Jesus, and um, he um, tries to do the best that he can, but one belief that he has that is quite peculiar is he doesn't believe hell is an actual reality, like it's not a real place. And I've tried telling him that, you know, like we've got like a bunch of verses that say that exists. Jesus himself even said that exists. And I even told him that hell has to exist because if it doesn't, then there's no justice for those who do wrong and don't accept Jesus. So, like, what's the whole point of, you know, being a Christian if literally everyone just goes to Jesus in the end? So, 
what do you think is the best way to approach this person? And like, are there any verses in particular that refer to hell as an actual reality rather than something, rather than verses that, well, you know, like people could be you like, well, you good. know, maybe it's not. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, so you get the dichotomies in scripture clearly with God, Satan, justice, injustice, heaven, hell. We get Gehenna, we get outer darkness, we get so many places to describe hell in that way. And for me, I typically go right to if there is a source of all goodness, all goodness, and that being God, then moving away from that source, there's got to be a complete breakdown and lack thereof of all goodness, which I would say is hell. But oftentimes in our culture, especially today, throughout history of this world, the vast majority of cultures have understood that there's a hell. But today, when I talk with any person, especially, whether it's a Christian actually or not a Christian, I always say, hey, can we just have levels of heaven? Like, can, we, can we just get away from this idea of hell? Because that just seems so unfair. But I like when C.S. Lewis talks about how hell is simply a grumbling mood that carries on for so long that eventually you've lost your own voice to clarify what that mood really is. You just lost yourself. You just become a grumbling mood, and that just goes on for eternity. So I think what C.S. Lewis is getting at is our identity can get caught up, and we just lose ourselves in a grumbling mood, or an identity where, you know, Father Abraham, the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man just became identified with his wealth so fully. He doesn't even want to get out of hell. It says that he's clearly not having fun in hell, but he doesn't, it doesn't say he wants to get out because he's still living for money, his wealth. So getting away from necessarily just talking about what hell physically is going to look like, because we don't get a lot of description of that, but just clarifying to your friend, well, there's going to be hell out there because there's going to be a complete lack of all goodness if there is immense amounts of goodness, perfect goodness in this life, which we define as what God gives us, then there's got to be the alternative. And then describe for him identity. What you live for will drive you typically to that place. Thank you for raising that issue. Yes, ma'am. Hello, B. Message after Jesus rose, he clearly gave the message to the apostles to tarry before they go back to Jerusalem and not to, you know, preach until the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we've seen the revivals all around over the years. Why are we not seeing anything in the churches here today? The real power of the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues, not speaking in tongues. I'm not criticizing one way or the other. Why are we not seeing it anymore? We're all preaching, we're all, but it's the real power. The last time I remember the power was in the 70s where I saw it falling all around this area. I haven't seen it falling like that. What are we waiting for? Okay, good question, B. I do not know. <laughs> I don't know why God works when he works in the way he does. God heals people. Why does he heal certain people and not other people? I do not know. Some people have the gift of speaking in tongues. Some people have the gift of prophecy. Why don't I have it? I do not know. So, God is God. God works in whatever way God chooses to work. I wish he would work differently. In fact, I wish he would heal a lot of my friends right now who have cancer. Yet, at this point, they're not healed. Now, how do I think that through? 
The way I think that through is thinking about the divine restraint. Come on, God, perform a miracle right now, right here. And God says, whoa, Cliff, slow down. I will work in my way slowly in my time. Now, do I know that God's Holy Spirit is working? Absolutely. We just heard from Brandon. Brandon was 12 when his father was murdered. Brandon had a lot to work through. A lot to work through. His dad was murdered in Long Island. But eventually, God's Holy Spirit worked in Brandon's heart to the point where he trusted in Christ. I talked with a man yesterday on the phone who works at an Indian PowerPoint nuclear plant. He was a slave of alcohol and drug addiction. He came to faith in Christ. That's because God's Holy Spirit drew him. So the Holy Spirit works in a lot of different ways in all of our lives if we're open to him. Do I want the Holy Spirit more? Absolutely. I pray, when I was pray with my boys at night, putting them to bed, I would pray, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit. I can promise you, B, every time I drive here Sunday mornings, I'm praying, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, draw people to yourself. So we depend upon the Holy Spirit. I've never converted anybody. I simply communicate Christ to people, as does Stuart, as do many of you. And then it's the Holy Spirit who draws people to himself. B, thank you for raising that issue. Somebody else have an issue? Yes, sir. And just kind of following up on your first question, is there a difference between uh, different Christian denominations? If so, um, why are we non-denominational? If there's not, then um, how do we choose which parts of different Christian denominations? Thank you. Excellent. There's around 3,300 different denominations. (laughs) It's a lot. And for... For us, Felix, it's important to remember that there's a dark side to that and a very positive side to that. The dark side is, when I was over in Scotland, it was amazing to see on the cobblestone roads, whoever's been to Scotland, especially Edinburgh, you walk every 50 yards and you see this person was pressed to death for not taking this position on a theological issue. You're like, wow, okay, so denominational differences, you know, it's just bad in that regard. But on the positive side is denominations do fit different cultures well, so different cultures can express their faith in different ways. So like a lot of my friends who are, say, Latin American, for example, more of a charismatic denomination that fits their culture very well, as opposed to them wanting to practice through, say, a Reformed Protestant denomination that would be very different, kind of more dusty intellectual types in order to express their faith. But we need to land on, ultimately, the denomination, but specifically the church you go to, has to have the majors in the faith. Who Jesus was, he claimed to be God, he was God, lived, died, rose from the dead, and is showing us a path to heaven. And then also, that that denomination specifically is one where I can say, I've encountered Christ, I'm in a growing relationship with him, And now, through the Great Commission, I'm going to spread his word, as opposed to just going to a church typically that is the frozen chosen, where I'm frozen in place in this church because I believe I've just been chosen by God, and those outside of this church have not been chosen, and so I'm not going to share my faith. So those are a few. Thank you for raising that. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Yes, 
Hello. Um, so in our identity, internal identity obsessed culture, how do you respond in a secular setting while still appearing loving, maybe not necessarily suggesting Christ in a sentence, um, but appearing loving and not being labeled as a bigot? Great question. The approach that I like is to ask the fundamental human questions. Why is a human life valuable? If there is no God, your number came up in a Monte Carlo game and so did mine. We are accidents. If we are accidents, to argue that a little baby has any value, intrinsic innate value, is a flight into la-la land. No. If we're all just accidents, I'm sorry, we don't have any value. And yet you can't live that way and I can't live that way. Now if I have a belief, but I can't live out that belief, I better go back and re-examine my belief. Second issue, what is the purpose to life? Shakespeare wrote, Macbeth, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It's exactly what the author of Ecclesiastes wrote. Vanity of vanities, everything's vanity. What's he doing? He's adopting an atheistic worldview, a totally secular worldview, which says there is no God. Well, if there is no God, let's be real honest with each other. Your life does not have any real purpose. Now, of course, you create your own purpose. But just remember, if I create the purpose of my life is to be a nice guy today, and tomorrow I say the purpose of my life is to not be a nice guy today, I'm not contradicting myself. It's all relative. It's all just a matter of personal taste. It's like, do you prefer broccoli or asparagus? Just a taste. So if you want to murder people today, love people tomorrow, and define that as the purpose of your life, so be it. It's all relative. It's all a cosmic crapshoot. See, that's the despair of atheism. And so I love to get that second point. First one, why are human beings valuable? Second one was, is there a purpose to life? Third one is, what's your ethical system? Why do you live your life the way ethically you do? Why? What's the basis of it? Oh, for Cliff, it's me, Cliff, it's all science. Really? Science tells me that if I put strychnine in grandma's tea, she will die. Science never once answers the question, should I put strychnine in grandma's tea? Because she has a rather large stock portfolio. And if she dies today, I will get that stock portfolio real quickly. Science has nothing to say about that. That is a philosophical, ethical question. All right? So please don't tell me that the basis of your morality is science. Science is a wonderful study of process. Bravo. It's based on a biblical worldview that there's an intelligent mind behind creation who's given us intelligent minds, and we, by doing good science, can unlock the secrets of the universe, can think God's thoughts after God. Fourth question. You've got to go to grandma's funeral. You've got to go to grandpa's funeral. You're probably going to have to go to mom and dad's funeral in the not-too-distant future. You ever going to see him again? Oh, no, I don't deal with that stuff, Cliff. Fine. I don't, like deal I don't like dealing with reality either. But like it or not, you will be going to grandma and grandpa's funeral, mom and dad's funeral. You have no choice. Oh, no, Cliff, I don't go to funerals. Fine. You know they're going to be die. So the question is, is there life after death? And I think it's a fascinating question. Now, guys, I really love to hear people express to me, why is human life valuable? What's the purpose of life? Why do I live my life ethically the way I do? And is there life after death or not? And then just listen. And I think that if you get into that type of discussion with people, at some point they're going to say, well, what do you think? 
And then the door is wide open to begin a meaningful conversation about the fundamentals of human existence. Why is human life valuable? What's the purpose to life if there is any? How do you live your life ethically? And what about life after death? Thanks for raising that issue. Somebody else have a question? Yes, ma'am. Good morning. So um, my question is, um, a lot of my family uh, grew up Catholic, and I just want to know really the difference between Catholicism and Christianity, and I want to know your answer to when Catholics come up and say, oh, like, we grew up this way, this is our tradition. Like, how, how would you respond to that? Yeah, so the majority of Catholics I know are the same as the majority of you in here in terms of understanding the essentials of the faith. So total agreement in that. The risk with Catholicism, but also other denominations too, because a lot of people typically just, just put this on Catholics, is the Catholic guilt that comes because you can't live up to this perfect, you know, this morally perfect standard that God gives or the priest gives or both. And so that's the, that's the challenge at times that I've heard in Catholicism because the guilt comes from that. And obviously we live by grace where it is a response that is completely freeing. It's, it's complete freedom, a response to the cross of Christ where we don't feel that guilt. Now, we still should feel wrong when we do sin and mess up. It's not like when Keira Knightley talked about, oh, it's so easy to be a Christian because anytime I'd sin and mess up, I would just say, yep, God forgives me. It, it's obviously not that. No, it's a response to change, but there's... There should be no, no guilt or shame that should last longer than five seconds for somebody who's done wrong, who's, who's in the faith. And so that's a small piece. I, just the non-essential parts, obviously, you know, praying to Mary. I think praying alongside of the saints is okay. I think you should only pray to God directly. But with the saints there next to you, I don't think you should be faulted in a major way for that. There's a lot more. I was talking with a couple of Catholic friends yesterday. There's a lot more structure oftentimes to the Catholic service. And so there's a lot of beautiful things about the Catholic faith, but, but just remember, whether it's Catholicism or any other denomination, it's just crucial, the understanding of it's not about us working to God by doing better things, but it's that God has already worked towards us, and it's a free response to his love that grows us in righteousness. Thank you for raising an excellent question. Somebody else have an issue they want to raise? Yes, sir. Go, Andy. <laughs> no dumb questions. No, they don't exist. Last question. Oh, thanks. I was born and raised a Catholic, mm -hmm. but I became uh, born again when I was 16 years old, so I'm of the faith. Um, and I read an interesting article the other day about the Catholics' view uh, versus the Protestants' view of purgatory and other Catholic, you know, and Protestant uh, differences. Um, so my, I have, a, I think, a really simple question. I think I know some of the answers. But our faith says we ask God for forgiveness. We are forgiven. And if we die, we're going to see Jesus. The Catholics are saying if you die with sin, you go to purgatory. Now, I don't believe in purgatory. I believe in heaven. I believe in hell. I don't believe in an in-between place. But... If I had a bad week, and I forgot to pray all week, and I had bad thoughts, and maybe I yelled at Shelly, um, I didn't pray that week. I sinned. I forgot to uh, pray. I didn't ask for forgiveness. I die. 
am I going to, am I going to go to heaven? Am good I going question. to see the Lord? Very good question. If I am driving down I-95 or the Merritt Parkway, I'm struck by a car and killed instantly. And if just before I was struck by that car, I was really ticked off, honked off, and experienced road rage at the way drivers were driving so recklessly, does that mean I go to hell because my last thought was road rage? No. I am not going to heaven because I am patient with irresponsible drivers. I'm going to heaven for one reason. God loves this sinner so much, he sent his son Christ to die on a cross for my sin, and I put my faith in him. That is why I do not believe and I do not agree with the thinking that if you commit suicide, you go straight to hell. Why? Because although it was horrible to commit suicide, if you put your faith in Christ and are struggling to follow him and then have some mental illness and you do something as sad and tragic as end your life, you're not going to hell because you're going to heaven is not based on you doing a good deed but when you draw your last breath. It's based on your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, to be honest with you, Andy, I am convinced, although I don't know this for sure, that the majority of genuine followers of Christ in New Canaan, Connecticut, are Catholic. Because the majority of my friends in New Canaan, Connecticut, who are Catholic, have a deep faith in Jesus Christ. And they revere him. Well, that's the issue, friends. Do you trust in Jesus Christ or not? And many of my Catholic friends, yes, trust in Jesus Christ. And many of my Protestant friends are just in a good old boys club. You know, be a nice guy. Nice guys make it to heaven because God, God smiles on nice guys. Baloney. None of us are nice as God defines nice. I'm not. I need God's grace. I need his forgiveness. Now, purgatory. The reason I don't agree with purgatory is because in the Bible there's no mention of purgatory. And that gets to one of the fundamental differences. But it's small, as Stuart said, between my, my Catholic priest friends and myself. And that difference is what's the ultimate authority? For me, the ultimate authority is the Bible, the word of God. For my Catholic friends, the ultimate authority is the Bible plus church tradition. And so because there's a church tradition called purgatory, they accept that. I don't. But it's not this humongous issue. Because guess what? No one's really going to control where I go after I die. And no one's really going to control where you go after you die. It's not in our hands. It's in God's hands. And God offers us grace, forgiveness, and he promises eternal life to everyone who trusts in his son Jesus. Thank you, Andy, for raising that issue. Yes, ma'am. Go right ahead. Hi. Hi. Um, I guess my question is, we understand in grace and believe in grace, but um, it says in the Bible, we know that no action that we do is going to add any merit to the cross. However, there is a focus, I believe, in doing God's work. It, from the, 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 the story of the talents that God gives you, you can squander those talents. He is asking for you to be a good steward over those talents. So I guess my question is where the balance is. We understand that we can't do things to get God love, but at the same time, there is an expectation for you to use the gifts and the talents that are given to you to advance, whether it's God's name or his kingdom. There is an expectation that you're not just sitting down on your Christianity and that's it. You're coming to church on Sunday and that's it. There is work to be done. Um, and the Bible specifically says there is, I'm the vineyard owner. You need to do some work in the kingdom. So I'm just wondering, where is that balance? Great question. So in Genesis, 
there is a poisoning of work. It became toilsome. In Revelation, and when we get back to the tree of garden, which life will be perfect and incredibly enjoyable beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations, we will still be working, but it will be work in such a way where it will be so life-giving and enjoyable, unlike any type of work we do now. And it will also be complete. Going back to J.R. Tolkien, he talked about this story, wrote this beautiful story, Leaf by Nigel. And it's basically about this guy who, it's, it's sort of like the myth of Sisyphus, where it's this constant, I gotta find my identity in my work, I don't like it, and this big boulder keeps coming down on me, or in Leaf by Nigel, I can't finish this beautiful painting of this tree, and so I feel like I'm just wasting my time and my breath here on this planet. But the whole point is to push us to every person that I know takes a degree of their worth and value and dignity in their work. And it gets bigger and bigger here in Fairfield County. And the problem becomes, it becomes when our identity and our worth is, is fully in our work, then you can have, like Leo Tolstoy, when he was at the height of his career, probably the best-known writer in the world, had a massive breakdown because he found his identity as work. So the rhythm of work and Sabbath-keeping is why, that's part of the reason why we get it in the Bible over and over again, keeping the Sabbath holy. But more specifically to your good question is, you know, my mom will make fun of him sometimes that his dad prayed over him every single night not to be lazy. And I kind of wish he had prayed that over me every now and then, every single night. But I feel like you gave me a little lazy wake-up call talk yesterday, maybe. I, I can't remember what it was. Regardless, no Christian is supposed to be lazy, right? We get throughout the book of Proverbs... A command against laziness and the ramifications that come from being lazy. The talents, I love that you went there. The balance of work and faith. It's crucial to understand he or she who's been given much, much will be expected is another one. That with the gifts we've been given, we are to go out and we are to make changes in this world. But we're also always to remember that there is eternity out there. And so it's a balance of we won't be able to finish our work here on this planet, but we're called to work hard, and that work will be perfected one day. And so it's that balance, just like grace and truth, just like understanding of James and Paul, where we get that faith, but faith is lived out through these good works. Good question. Yes. All right, Fred, fire it, brother. This will be a topic. This is a simple question. <clears throat> Good, we like those. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God pours eternity into our hearts. I'm assuming that God pours eternity in our hearts when we're born. We're born in sin, and we're born with eternity in our hearts. We know in John 3.3 that Jesus says, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. If you're an unbeliever, uh, and if, if you're born again, you'll spend eternity with God. If you're not a believer uh, and you have eternity in your hearts, is it correct to say that they will spend eternity in hell? All right, good question, Fred. God has set eternity in the hearts of women and men, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes. When you study anthropology, you will notice how true that Bible verse is. Around the world, 
every human being has a desire, an innate desire, to live life after death. Oh, no, not me, Cliff. I'm different. I don't have a desire to live life after death. Really? Then would you please explain to me why when you hurt yourself badly or if you get sick enough, you will hire the highest-priced doctor to heal you? Please don't give me this gibberish. You don't care if you die or not. You know very well that you care whether you die or not. And the proof is because of the expensive medical attention you pay for when you get really sick. So we all have a desire to live life, and that's a good desire. That's a God-given desire. And guess what? God created us for the purpose of living for eternity. God did not create us for the purpose of living 60 to 80 years and then cash out. Extinction. No. He created us to live to know and love and adore him and worship him for eternity. And death is not God's idea. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul calls death the last enemy, he is so spot on. Death is an enemy. And I never perform a funeral and say, well, I'm glad she's gone. Well, I'm glad he's gone. No, it's a tragedy that people die. But we have the ultimate solution to death in Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul writes in Philippians 1, 20 to 25, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, it will mean fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor for me, sister. You're absolutely right. Yet what shall I do? I do not know. I'm, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So, I know that when you and I die, Fred, our soul will go into the presence of Christ. He promises that. And we will enjoy his presence, both of us will, and all of us who put our faith in Christ. And when Christ returns a second time in power and great glory, there will be a resurrection, and he will give us new bodies. Nirvana is not heaven. Nirvana in Hinduism and Buddhism is becoming one with everything, whatever that means. Jesus Christ said, heaven is with a resurrection body. I go to prepare a place for you, he says in John 14. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to be with me. There's the I-thou relationship, so that where I am, there you may be also. And where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And Philip said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Fred, you're going to heaven, not because you're a great guy. You're going to heaven, brother, because you have put your faith in Christ. And I know you've gone through some horrendous health issues, and I know you've got a precious daughter on your left there who takes good care of you. But you and I are both going to pass away at some point, and we're going to pass right into the presence of Christ. And when he returns a second time, you will have a new body, and I will have a new body to live in a new heaven and a new earth. Thank you, Fred, so much for raising that. Last question. Yes, sir. You bet. Go for it. As a Christian, how do you deal with this on earth? How do you maintain that vulnerability uh, when someone continuously, you know, doesn't act Christ-like with you? It's a great question, Kedrick. So in one sense, we can, in the Greek, make that verse a lot easier for us. And in another sense, looking in the Greek, it can become a lot harder than it is for us. 
easier in the sense of, contextually speaking, turning the other cheek wasn't turn, 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 just let me, this person abuse me and I'm going to be a doormat no matter what. No, it was turning, but then responding, and so that becomes easier, but here comes the harder part in the Greek. So what Christ, what Paul, what they talk about is reconciliation. So the, the Christian is not supposed to lay down and just keep getting abused physically, emotionally, whatever it might be. No, they are supposed to take it, say the first time, but then they're always supposed to look to see if there's an opportunity for things to be reconciled. So oftentimes, you know, we, we think, okay, take, take Peter, for example, where we're to forgive 70 times 7, which is a, a, a number that does not end. Okay, forgiving is very different than a physical slap. We are always to forgive because it brings internal freedom, because Christ modeled it, and because it brings relational connection and reconciliation. So the forgiveness is always there. But again, that's not abuse because forgiveness is always supposed to be pushing us towards justice as well. If you don't forgive, it's very hard to get justice because then justice is always fueled by revenge, right? We see that in our culture all the time now. So I would take that verse, it's always, you always forgive, but then look at turn the other cheek and it's not I'm going to keep getting physically or emotionally abused. No, I'm going to, I'm going to take it, but then I'm going to actually not be a doormat, but I will try and seek forgiveness. And don't forget, it's, it's never Christ-like to allow a brother or sister in Christ to sin against you without calling them on it. Because you're to call them on it so that they might repent, so that they might eventually grow in their faith and change. So calling them on it, but then always looking to reconcile is what that verse is all about. It's a good question. Friends, this has been a blast. Thank you for all the issues you've raised. We're going to continue this discussion, this dialogue, tonight at 5.30 in the West Barn Lounge. We'd love to invite all of you to join us if your schedule permits. Tonight, 5.30, West Barn Lounge. Let's pray. Wait, oh, sorry. Oh, oh, thank you. You, you asked for a close. I'll give yeah, you a quick close. Yeah, I sure close. did. B, because you had the question of the day on why don't we see more revival here in our area. I wrestle with that one, too. A few thoughts. One, what exactly is revival? because people respond in different ways to the faith, right? Is it just more people raising their hands? Absolutely, it can be. Is it more people like a lot of my Chinese friends who are worshiping in a different way, hands down, and a lot more solemn in different ways? Is it by numbers? Is it by, not necessarily numbers, it's depth of faith by a small... So you have to define what that means. Historically, the majority of revivals started with a small group of people who were praying, but then repenting. Repentance, looking inward to change. Now, I rarely brag on my father. I usually rib him instead. But we, we saw the revivals. A handful of you went to the revival at the, at the school, I think, in the Midwest, right? Uh, not too long ago. That revival is still growing in different ways. We're not seeing the same numerical growth. But on college campuses and how we have new folks coming every Sunday through social media from what happens on college campuses has been mind-boggling to me, absolutely mind-boggling, because I thought personally that the majority of university students wouldn't want to have these discussions and we'd be turned off because it's all about kind of just me focused and looking inward. The thousands and thousands are coming to consider Christ and to have these dialogues and debates, some of them very angry, others of them crying 
with serious relational or mental health issues, but talk about revival has been insane, absolutely insane, and different people are doing it. Some are even non-Christians, like a Jordan Peterson, where there are thousands of people coming to know Christ through a non-Christian. Explain that. But regardless, I think it's crucial to look at where and how we can go about creating a type of revival. And one way to do it, I surprised a friend this week, uh, Will Seto. I told him we were going to coffee. Instead, I went and I said, hey, get in the car. And I brought flyers for Grace Church. And we hung up flyers instead. I'm going to hang up flyers with me for over an hour. Norwalk Community College, we broke in there. We hit all these different towns. So, so that, was, <laughs> that, that was one small way. And he was very gracious. He, he was very creative in how he did it. That was one small way of trying to bring about revival. Many of you in here have set up tables at different events downtown and beyond, Lewisboro, etc. And that is another way to bring about revival. Many of you have one-on-one conversations with friends in town. Many of you invite other families to come to Grace. That is part of our work in revival, all steeped in prayer, right? And so for me, and just ending on this, there are small ways to do it. Practically speaking, other ways. One, like and share services that we have at Grace on Facebook or, or send it to a friend. The social media accounts, a handful of you have asked about them. The TikTok is my name, Stuart Connectly. The YouTube channel is Ask Cliff. Facebook is connected with the church, and that is Give Me an Answer. Um, Instagram is Give Me an Answer. Different social media outlets. I would use your own Grace Community Church. Julia Hughes does a phenomenal job with Grace Community Church's social media account. Use social media. Flyers, we're going to have a lot of them most Sundays to just get the word out and always have it steeped in prayer in order to bring about revival. We all have a job to do, and as we do it together as a family, it will get done. It just will get done. And we'll see it in different ways, whether it's numerical growth or a single soul. It's amazing the the testimonies we have in here of people who are growing in their faith just by hearing the word preached and growing in family relationships, in small groups, in Sunday schools, in one-on-one conversations in the commons. That's real revival. But we all have a job to do, and that's the beauty of it, that God uses us, but at the same time, his will never changes, and his sovereignty never fades. So that was an awesome question that you had. Thank you. Let's bow and pray together. Lord Jesus, we are a family of faith. We are a team of believers. You've given each one of us gifts, different gifts. We are your body, the body of Christ. Lord Jesus, use us well this week to point people to you in subtle and not-so-subtle ways, to listen well to people, and to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Let us rise again for worship.
standing here Not knowing how we'll get through this test But holding on to faith, you know that Nothing can catch you by surprise You got this figured out And you're watching us now But when it looks as if we can't win You wrap us in your arms and step in And everything we need you supply You got this in control And now we know that you made a way When our backs were against the wall And it looks as if it was over You made a way And we're standing here Only because you
and the commons immediately following the service. Hope you can join us. If you didn't get a question answered or if you have friends who have questions, I'd invite you to come back this evening, 5.30, and we will continue this dialogue. Let's bow and pray together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his attention in a way that you know it powerfully today and this week and forevermore, and give you his peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week. Guys, welcome back to Next Generation Saints. I hope you really enjoyed that broadcast. I personally always loved listening to what Cliff and Stuart talk about. The topics can get rather intense, but I always enjoy it. I think that we need to answer important questions. I think that, you know, not all questions could be sugar-coated. So I want to make a quick reminder, again, to everyone listening to this podcast. Go ahead and like and subscribe to this podcast, wherever you may be listening to podcasts. And again, I'm going to show it to you guys again. My merch shop. This is one of them. This is from Coons T-Shirts. Go ahead and take a look on Etsy. I will provide the link below. And right before we finish this off, let's hear from our sponsor one last time. So until next time, we meet again. May God richly bless y'all, my dearly beloved.